0: Well, now you know where that phrase, head on a platter, comes from. What a gruesome, ugly episode. So violent. Herodias' daughter, who's traditionally known as uh, Salome, makes a, a ghastly request at the behest of her mom. She asks for John's head on a platter. It's a rather macabre image. and We use it hyperbolically to refer to very harsh consequences, and being decapitated, I think, would surely qualify. Head on a Platter, I found out this week, is also the unlikely name for a ceramics shop in South Africa. The owner's name? Salome. (laughs) That's a demented name for a business, but she gets an A for effort, and I would definitely shop there just because of the work that she made and put in in, uh, her name. How many people would would get the connection? Uh, Salome, it turns out, actually isn't mentioned in Mark or the other gospel reports of this incident, but we're told her name um, by the ancient historian uh, Josephus. We don't know much about her, except apparently she's a very good dancer. Her mother, uh, Herodias, enlists her in in a plot to settle a festering score with John the Baptist. You see, he did not look upon her marriage to Herod favorably. In fact, as a biblical prophet, he opposed it. Herod had divorced his former wife to marry Herodias, who was inconveniently married to his brother, which makes the marriage, of course, incestuous. Yet John's opposition to this marriage isn't merely for pious reasons. You see, marriage in royal courts was often about politics before it was about love. Maybe you remember this from your Western Civ class where we read about all of the European rulers and nobles who were marrying rulers and nobles from other kingdoms to create strategic alliances. But for whatever reason, Herodias entered into this marriage. She's not about to see it ended by a religious zealot, a weirdo from out in the desert. She's a political realist, and she wants John out of the picture because he's complicating things. Only her husband isn't cooperating. It seems in the text like she's been pressing her case, trying to eliminate John's prophetic scolding of this marriage, his pesky insistence that God's law, rather than Herod's towering ambition, should hold sway over the realm. But Herod, you see, has this strange, maybe a begrudging respect for John. He knows him to be a holy man, and as a half-Jew, maybe Herod feels a connection with this ancient prophetic tradition in Israel who have always spoken to rulers in this way. You just have to listen, but know that the real power is in the throne. The real power is in the gathering of these people that he has called to his, invited to his birthday party. These prophets have no real power to make kings do what they say. So he won't kill John as Herodias wants, at least not initially. Only have him arrested and thrown into prison. Marriage, as it turns out, is all about compromise. Well, Herodias enlists her daughter into a devious plot. On Herod's birthday, Salome dances for uh, the royal court and the guests that are gathered there. Perhaps this dance is provocative, Perhaps she's just an exceptional dancer, or more likely, most likely, Herod is drunk, and he makes this rash, not so serious promise that Salome can have whatever she wants, even half of his kingdom. Now, Mark is going out of his way to tell us that Herod giving into this plot isn't rational; he's not going to promise half of his kingdom to his stepdaughter because she's a really good dancer. He's drunk, and maybe he's patronizing her. He's being hyperbolic. But he says this in front of these VIPs that are gathered, and now he's stuck. Mark tells us that the people gathered here are the high officials, the military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. That is, these were the court nobles, the military officers, and the leading businessmen, or representatives from the governmental, military, and commercial interest of Herod's kingdom. All of the most important people, the alliances, the loyalty that Herod needs to maintain his grip on power are all there. And they've just heard Herod make this drunken, rash promise to Salome about the head of John the Baptist. And he doesn't know how to back out. Now, his kingdom is actually a quarter of a kingdom. Herod is what is known in Roman parlance a a tetrarch. He's not a king. He inherited half of his father's kingdom. And so Mark is likely calling him king as satire, as parody. Herod wants to be king. That is his every ambition in life. And for that to happen, he needs alliances. He needs to accumulate loyalty from the ruling classes. He can't show weakness in these or any other circumstances, so he orders someone to be murdered in a gruesome way to save face. It's evil, it's demonic, and it's politically expedient. Maybe Herod liked John. It sounds like he did. He likes to listen to him, but he's surely not going to put a strange prophet above his own ambition. It's easy to criticize Herod here, along with Herodias and all the other dignitaries that watched this gruesome affair without objection, at least not vocalizing their objection. And we should criticize them but i think mark's point is larger than don't behave like these people that's an that's an easy one for most of us but in reality most of us while we're not going to have someone's head lopped off if they get in way of our ambition none of us prefer to show weakness all of us like to act like we've got it all together that we are in control that we're masters of our faith. We've got fate. We've got our house in order. We are capable people who make stuff happen. We have power. We show power. We respect power. We want power. We've likely made the same calculations that Herod is making here, but thankfully with much lower stakes. But we know his instinct, right, to save face rather than to lead, to be ruled by the desires or the expectations perceived or accurate of others rather than what God says is true and good and lovely. Repentance, this word that we've been coming back to over and over in Mark that John actually introduced us to in chapter 1 is not only abstaining from these kinds of behaviors, but it's also rejecting the world in which these behaviors make sense. It's not only abstaining from these behaviors, but it's rejecting the world, the system, in which these behaviors make sense. Repentance means doing what is truthful, what is righteous, what is good, because in Jesus The world has changed, and it is changing. And in this new world, the expectations of others, the approval of the powerful, they are far less valuable than what they seem. Yet saying these kinds of things to certain people in certain places in the in-between time can still get you in trouble. It can still stunt your career. And perhaps even get you killed. And John is executed just like the prophets who came before him that we read about today. And as it turns out, just like the prophets who will come after, particularly one. Mark here is writing a bitter satire. He's writing a parody of Herod's power. And like so many other stories in the Bible, Herod is the person with the most apparent power and the least visible character. Those with worldly power, we are told in the Bible over and over that their power is realized only in a fading kingdom. And that John's appearance back in chapter 1 outside the city gates from the wilderness and all of Jerusalem is coming out to hear his message. Mark is telling us in John's original message and throughout these first six chapters that God's new world is beginning. It is beginning in John's announcement, his preaching of repentance from the desert that is announcing the coming of the new kingdom in Jesus. A kingdom where power is derived not from the accumulation of worldly acclaim, not from worldly opinion, not from political alliance, not from the sword, but power is derived from service and self-sacrifice even unto death. Now we're ma- we're ma- we we are invited here, I believe, to insert ourselves into the story. We're always invited to do that, and it's interesting who we associate ourselves with, or maybe in this case, who would we choose to switch places with? Which of the main characters in the story would we want to switch places with? With John or with Herod, if we were given. The choice. Well, maybe this if isn't so much of an if. Maybe we have to make this choice every single day. And like Andy Dufresne, if you remember in the Shawshank Redemption, that he said it's time to get busy living or get busy dying. Maybe making this choice isn't an if. This episode that we read about this morning, it feels like an interruption in the narrative. It seems to drop out of nowhere. We haven't seen or heard from John since chapter one where he baptizes Jesus. But over the last six chapters, we've seen the opposition to Jesus stir. And we've seen it come at Jesus from all corners, from the religious elite, from the demonic, from death and sickness, from his own family. And now, from this imaginary king, this Tetrarch, what Mark is telling us is that none of the caretakers of the old world, none of the guardians of the status quo want this alternative kingdom that John announced back at the River Jordan in chapter 1. If he'd stayed out in the wilderness wearing camel hair and eating honey and whatever it is that weird religious prophets did back in the the day. He probably would have been left alone. There were many people like him. But what he does is he dares to challenge the political power structure. He tells Herod to his face and everyone else who will listen, not just once, but it seems like repeatedly, that you can't be Israel's king without following Israel's God that ruling and righteousness must be coupled. He is calling Herod's incestuous marriage into question, not merely because it's biologically incestuous, but because it's spiritually incestuous. Herod is bowing to the golden calf of power, and everyone who participates in a system that kills prophets so that kings can save face is bowing to that golden calf. John points it out, and he's killed for it. This episode doesn't fall out of nowhere in the narrative. What happens right before this incident in the palace? What did we read about last week? The sending of Jesus' disciples. Oh, I see. <laughs> The John story, coming where it does in the narrative, is telling us that those who inherit Jesus' mission may also inherit Jesus' fate or John's fate. While in our context, inheriting Jesus' mission may not include for us a premature death at the hands of violent kings, it should at least make us remember our brothers and sisters, for whom it has or it will. And it should make us remember that Jesus' claim upon the lives of his followers is total. It is ultimate. Just as Herod's power was claimed to be, just as he asserted his own power, Jesus is saying no, that Herod's power is limited, Herod's power is fading, and that Our allegiance, if we are to follow Christ, must also be total. And that means that the claims of state and religious establishments, the the claims of race and gender and culture and money are subverted and rendered void. In fact, we are to pity rather than envy those whose lives are ruled by those claims. The earliest and most radical Christian confession was very simple. It said that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. Jesus is Lord and not Herod. Jesus is Lord and not the president. Neither are all the other false gods of religion, of party, of money, of sex, of power that Jesus alone is to be Lord. And of course, we see that this narrative doesn't drop out of nowhere from what we've read so far, but it's also setting up what comes in the next few chapters. The parody of Herod's court paves the way for Mark to write an even more powerful political parody, and that's the death of Jesus. He also is murdered by someone with a lot of apparent power, but no guts, no character, no righteousness, no honesty. And that's Pilate. He and Herod both worship at the altar of expedience. They both want the world to continue just as it is because they are on top of that world. They've navigated the dominant order with great skill and cunning. Well, actually, they were born into it. But like most people of privilege, like most people who are born on second or third base, they don't like to think that they're benefiting from an inherited advantage, but just an abundance of intelligence and street smarts and hard work. A more bitter satire of this kind of thinking could not have been written the gospel says that the one with all the power not the apparent power but real power the one with all the power status wealth and wisdom gives it up for you and for me to invite us into a new world and that his death unmasked the poverty of the world that exists now, that we all participate in and sometimes worship, sometimes give our allegiance to. And Jesus' resurrection announces the inbreaking of a new life where true human flourishing, yours, mine, and our neighbors, comes through service and sacrifice and allegiance to God's values, because that's where Jesus found his joy. He wants us to find joy, fulfillment, and flourishing in the very same places. Let's pray now that that would be true for us as individuals, true in our households, true in our church. Let's pray. Father God, we do pray that you would enable us, empower us, to truly give our allegiance to you at least in theory today and that we would learn how to practice that allegiance each and every day that is coming father i pray that we would think critically that we would about our own thinking that we would interrogate our thoughts interrogate our loyalties interrogate our commitments That we would look at them through the lens of a world that has changed and is changing. That we would look at them through the lens of the gospel that sees Jesus coming to take our place on a cross and to give us his life only by grace. I pray that we would take hold of that life, that we would receive it not only for personal transformation so that we can be a part of the kingdom, but so that we could be ones who bring that kingdom to others. We pray in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Now as we come to the table, we're going to confess our faith, and we're using this morning a rather new confession. This is from our own denomination, the RCA, that was written in 1978. This is part of A Song of Hope. It's a beautiful confession. You can look it up online. Um, And I commend it to you for your personal devotion, your personal prayer life. This is part of it. Christian, what do you believe? Jesus Christ is the hope of God's world. In his death, the justice of God is established. The forgiveness of sin is proclaimed. On the day of the resurrection, the tomb was empty. His disciples saw him. Death was defeated. New life had come. God's purpose for the world was sealed. Now, as we come to the table, we see a demonstration of God's mercy and his grace. And we see that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke the bread and he said, this is my body, it is given for you. Eat this all in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Drink this all in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread or you drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And therefore, for many centuries, Christians have proclaimed the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ our Passover. He is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. These are the gifts of God and they're for the people of God. So feed on him in your hearts by faith and with great thanksgiving. We'll give everyone here a chance to partake of communion. And then Matt will um, invite us back together uh, in song in just a moment. i yeah. yeah.